John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the pit, shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. They will be priests of God and of Christ. And they will reign with Him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog, to gather them from battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they march up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night. Forever and ever. Their end. Their destruction. Right? You've played this game, I'm sure. Man, if I was in charge. Right? This is exactly what I would do. You know, we've, we've had a conversation, especially probably this week. Probably Wednesday night, you're probably going, I'll tell you what. You know what? If I were in charge. I tell you what, if I were president, I would have, if I was the, you know, right, we play that game, right? If I were in charge, if I were just in charge for a day, man, think about the change that I could bring about, right? How about if you were in charge for a thousand years? What if you had a thousand years? And it was all your, man, what would you do then? I said things right, the way I think it should be, right? I mean, you're talking about changing government, you're talking about changing politics, you're talking about changing the social structure of things and the economics. And we go on and on and on and on, right? And we can set it up. Let me go one step further. What if Christ were here right now? What if Christ had been here Wednesday on this earth right now? Well, I know he came. Right? We know he came the first time. Well, what if he were here? Well, I guarantee you this. This is sometimes the way we think. I guarantee you this. If he were here, man, this stuff would be going on. If he were here, uh, this stuff would be 
perfect government. Greatest blessings we could ever, ever, ever imagine. Peace as never before. Right? Surely then, if Christ were here, surely then people would stop their rebellion and people would just simply lay down their arms and worship Christ. Right? If you were here, surely that's what would happen. So then here's the issue. Alright? Here, here's the big issue. Let's probe just a little bit deeper. Because it is, is our problem external? Just change the circumstances. Just change government. Just change this. Just change that. Change the economic situation. Uh, is our problem just external? You know? Get the right people in the right places. Get the right people in charge of our institutions. Uh, you know, make sure that, that we have these circumstances right. And, uh, man, we're going to be blessed. Just, just get things in the right structure, in the right order, and look out, man. Because we'll flourish then. I mean, is that really it? It's just external. Or is it the problem is it internal? That regardless of the external, that our real issue is something that's internal. Our real problem is personal. Our real problem is something which needs a far more radical solution than just fair elections. It needs a far more radical solution than just changing the circumstances. See, I think the Bible takes us to a much deeper place than just external circumstances. It takes us to a much deeper place. And it started taking us to that place from the very beginning. From the very outset, God's Word began to show us where the heart of true rebellion really lies. And it's not just in external institutions and external things and so forth. It takes us to a deep place. Revelation 20 is going to take us there. It's going to take us there in an unusual way. It's going to take us there. And so it's something about Revelation 20 in these first uh, ten verses of this chapter that, that often gets overlooked. That often gets overlooked in all the glitz and the glamour of what is the thousand years and the millennial reign of Christ and this and that. It, it's something that I think is there and it's there and it's sort of, I think, an underlying condition of what God's trying to say and what he's trying to communicate to us. In this. In Revelation 20, John's going to reveal, he's going to talk about three things. He's going to see three things. Really, we're only going to look at the first two things that he sees. Because in verse 11, there's another, then I saw. And Revelation 19 and 20 go together. It's, it's the same narrative. In fact, we, we step out of Revelation 19 and 20 and look again at the big picture of the book and what's being communicated in the book. And we see the first three chapters, the letters to the churches, and then chapters 4 and 5. that set the stage, really, in that great scene. And, and it sets the stage for the whole rest of the book of Revelation. Because who is this about? It's about Christ. This is a revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? It's a revelation of Him. It's a revelation from Him. John got this from Him. 
And then you remember we walked through the beginning of 6 and all the way uh, through the, those sections of the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, and the judgments. And, and we walked through that and there were these brief little breaks, these brief little moments of respite where we see John seeing certain things. And, and, it, and it's, uh, it's almost as if, okay, this is the stuff that's happening. And this is the stuff, this is horrible stuff. This is bad stuff. God's speaking in judgment. But then all of a sudden there were these breaks, right? And we got to see things sort of from a heavenly perspective. And we got to see and understand God's people are okay. They're okay. And we see the underlying theme through all of this is don't you bow the knee to Caesar. You better come out about it. You remember we saw finally Babylon, Babylon was falling. We see those end judgments. And we also got introduced to a spiritual war that's taking place that's ugly, it's real, it's horrible. You remember 12? You remember 13 and the beast and Satan pictured there as one who's, who's as Peter says, he's like this roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he's got some friends, he's got some help. There, there, there were the two beasts of Revelation 13. There was the, 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 uh, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and we see this spiritual war that's unfolding, and then finally we get to the very end, the trumpet judgments, and then Babylon's judged. In 19, we see the second coming of Christ, marriage supper of the Lamb. And 19 and 20 fit together as, as part of the same narrative. And we see in 19, John says, and I heard, and I heard. And then all of a sudden there's a shift, and we see it in 19. Then I saw. Then I saw. Then I saw. Well, in 20, he's going to see three things, and we're only dealing with the first two this morning. You see this in chapter 20, verse 1, where he says, Then I saw, and what did he see? He sees an angel. He sees an angel. And he sees this angel, and this angel's coming down. But before we get to this, there's another question that needs to be asked. And I asked this Wednesday night, because we started to look at this a little bit. We didn't get too much in depth. This, this next Wednesday night, Lord willing, we're going to flesh out some more of this. Because there's no way that, that in one message that on a Sunday morning that I can deal with all that's here. Okay? And I asked this question Wednesday night, because it's a key question. It's a key question as to how you understand Revelation chapter 20. And it's, it's a key question as to how you understand this issue of the religion. And that is this. Does the Bible anticipate an age to come that is more glorious than the present age, but it's still not the new heaven and the new earth? Is there anywhere in Scripture where we see this where there's this anticipation of a glorious age to come that's great, but it's not the new heaven and the new earth. Go to Isaiah just a second. Let me show you what I'm talking about. The way you answer this question depends on the way you're going to take Revelation chapter 1. I think, I think it goes a long way in how you're going to understand. Are we dealing with symbolic language here, or are we dealing with something that's factual, that's literal, that's going to happen. So look at Isaiah chapter 11. This is a passage you probably 
a little bit familiar with. Isaiah 11, Isaiah the prophet's talking about the righteous reign of the branch, the Messiah who's to come in verse 1 of chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be to fear the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. In verse 4, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Verse 5. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. And faithfulness the belt of his, lo of, of, of his loins. In verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nurse, nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's uh, den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the way. The knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So, is this an anticipation of a time, of a blessed time that's glorious? It's obviously not like this age, right? Because I don't think you're going to go, put, I don't think you're going to let your child go put its hand over the hole of a cobra right now, right? And I certainly, we don't see the wolf dwelling with the lamb right now, right? We see wolves eating lambs, right? So, so is this an anticipation of an age that's blessed? It's not like this age. But yet it's still not the new heaven and the new earth. Let me show you another place in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah chapter 65. You remember a couple of weeks ago for our scripture reading, I read from Isaiah chapter 65. Partly in anticipation of this. But Isaiah chapter 65 there seems to be another description of a time, a period of time, that's blessed beyond measure. It's not like this age, but it's still not the new heaven. Alright, and this is what we read in Isaiah 65, verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be gladness, to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old. Now, stop right there. This can't be the new heaven and new earth, right? Because there's death. But it does seem to be an age, a period of time, much more blessed than what we're in now. You see, that's the point. 
So the young men shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. And they shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall, they shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the, of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. See it again? This is what we just saw in 11, right? The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food, and they shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain. So, the question then is this. Does the Bible anticipate an age to come that's not this age, but is still not the new heaven and the new earth? Now, as I said, how you answer that question determines how you see Revelation chapter 20. Because if you say, Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 65 are just describing new heavens and new earth. It's just describing eternity. It's really not an age, but there's some problems with that. I just pointed out one, right? There's death there. And if you say, well, no, it doesn't really anticipate this kind of age. It just talks about the new heaven and the new earth. Then what you're going to do is you're going to take Revelation 20 in symbolic language. You're just going to see it as symbolic. I'll touch on that some, but I'm really saving that, and we'll deal with that more this, this next Wednesday night. But if you say, no, the Bible does anticipate an age that is glorious and grand and great. We don't know a whole lot about that age because even Revelation 20 doesn't tell us about the nature of that age. It's not this age, but yet it's not the new heaven and the new earth. But it's going to be a real time period. And if you answer yes, that it's going to be real and little, then what you see Revelation describing twin are talking about is that time a little millennial reign of Christ. I take it that the Bible does anticipate an age to come. I do so because I think the language, particularly of Isaiah 11 and 65, seems to indicate that, but there are some reasons, and there's two main reasons that jump out of the text in Revelation 20 to where I see and think that yes, we're dealing with an age to come that's not the new heaven and new earth, but it is a much more glorious age than what we're in right now. Okay? So in this, I think John, we're going to see the two things that, that he sees here. Uh, the first thing, as I mentioned, he says, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. And there's something about this angel. There's two things, really. And they're present participles. So he sees this angel. Who is this angel? Some have said it's Christ. Some have said, oh, it's another angel that we've already seen. We've already seen angels all over the place in the book of Revelation, right? We've seen angels doing this and doing that and revealing this and talking and saying. But then he says, I saw an angel. We're not told which angel or who this angel is. But the first thing, he's coming down out of heaven. He's coming out of heaven, which indicates he's coming from the very presence of God, right? He's coming out of heaven. And the second thing, he's holding in his hand a key to the bottomless pit. We've already seen this abyss. 
We've already seen in chapter 9, for instance, who comes out of this abyss. All oh, horrid evil, as you can imagine. So the abyss is not a good place. The abyss is hell itself. And so this angel comes down, and he's coming down, he's holding in his hand a key to the bottomless pit. If he's got a key to it, then he must have been given this key by someone, right? Well, he's coming from heaven, so obviously he's the one that gave him the key. It's got to be the Father, right? Because this is Christ, he has the keys. He's talked about already having the keys, right? So he comes down, he's having his key to the bottomless pit, and he's also got a great chain. Megalon. Great. It's not a small chain. It's not a leash. I mean, this is a big, big chain. You know, if you have a little bitty dog, you know, it would be funny to see someone walk in a chihuahua with a wall chain, right? What's the, what's the deal? He understood how ferocious this dog is. But it'll also be kind of stupid, and, you know, to see someone you know, like a rottweiler or something with, 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 a, with a little bitty thin lace leash and like, I've got to hold him back. He's going to break that leash, right? This is a great chain. But what's he going to do with this chain? Listen to what it says. He's got this great chain, and what he does is he seizes the dragon. He takes hold of the dragon with this chain. Who's the dragon? Well, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. We introduced to him, right? We've already seen him. In, in, in fact, this is the same description, the same names that we see in Revelation 12. So make no mistake, who this angel comes after, having the key to this abyss, having the chain, his target is Satan. It's not Satan's followers. It's not the Antichrist. It's not the false prophet. Apparently, in, in the flow of 19 and 20, the Antichrist and false prophet and all of Babylon has already been judged and gone. He's coming after Satan. He's coming after Satan. And what does he do to him? And bound him for a thousand years. This is the first time we're introduced to the thousand years. We've seen numbers. We've already seen numbers being used symbolically throughout the book of Revelation. This understanding the binding to me is the first key to understanding whether we're in symbolic language or whether we're in literal language. Is this all just symbolic? Or is this a literal, the angel comes down into the chain and literally finds the same in the thousand years? If this is symbolic, then those who take it as being symbolic say something like this. They say that what happened when Jesus died on the cross was that there was a binding of Satan. He was defeated. He was limited. And we read, for instance, and see, like, say, take, for instance, in his public ministry, the temptations. What did he do? He didn't just survive the temptations. He defeated Satan. He bound Satan to the Word of God. Okay? Didn't Jesus himself say that the kingdom is here? It's present. And did he talk about that what you first must do is you're going to invade a strong man's house? What do you do? 
you buy the Doesn't Paul say in Colossians that Christ, when he died on the cross, he defeated the principalities and powers? But the question is, is that the same type of binding that's being described in Revelation 20? I don't think it is. Is he limited? Yeah, but listen, the way that this is put in Revelation 20, Satan's not going to leave. He is bound. It makes better sense to understand not just from our thinking and, and, and whether it's about, but how does John see the binding here? What has John already told us about Satan in chapter 12? Is Satan on a leash in chapter 12? Is he in any sense presented as bound in chapter 12? No, absolutely not. In fact, Satan is ferocious. He is attacking. He tried to kill Christ. He's gone after the church. He's gone after the followers of Christ. So there may be some sense in which he has been defeated and that victory is not fully realized yet. But I, I have to tell you the language, particularly the language of the book of Revelation, is that what we've seen up until this point is Satan certainly is not on a leash. Satan certainly is not, in a sense, bound in any way. He is active, and he is actively destroying. He is actively tempting. He is actively deceiving. And he had help, didn't he? He had the Antichrist, the false prophet. So this is the first thing why when I look and read and try to understand what's happening here is this binding. I don't take it as a symbolic binding. He is bound. It's a literal binding here. And he's bound for a thousand years. He's bound for a thousand years. See, the whole issue of a thousand years, it's a time sequence. Now, the thousand years could be symbolic. I don't know. We've seen 10 years used symbolically. We've seen three and a half years, 42 months used symbolically. But what seems to be clear, what's being communicated, is there is a time period coming. It's going to be a glorious, blessed time. And one of the first things that happens at the beginning of that time period is Satan's And he's thrown into this pit. He's thrown into the abyss. He's thrown into the Think about this. In Revelation 12, he's thrown out of where? He's thrown out of heaven. Right? He's thrown out of heaven. In Revelation 20, where is he thrown out? He's thrown out of the earth. He's thrown out of heaven, and then here comes the angel, his target Satan. What does he do? He binds him, and he throws him out of the earth. This is important. He is bound and he is in the abyss during this time. And notice the language here. He threw him into the pit, he shut it, he sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. That's a scary thought there. So for this period of time, this blessed period of time, we call the millennium. Satan is bound, he's in a pit, 
and the language here, it's all Aristotle's verbs, which means it's, it's an indication that it's pointing to Christ. This happened. He threw them into the pit. He shut it. He sealed it over him. And Satan cannot. The language is clear in the Greek. Not. He cannot deceive. It's impossible for him to deceive. To, to deceive. Keep that in mind. Then after the thousand years, he's going to be released for a little while. We'll see here in just a second. And then verse 4, and then, it, and then he says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those who had the authority, and the authority to judge was committed. It was This authority was given to them. And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or in their hands. We've seen this already, right? There's, there's two people groups. There are those who worship the beast and take the mark. And then there are those who don't. There are those who have given their life for the, for the cause of Christ. And there are those who gladly follow the beast. There are those who were in Babylon. Those who were not. In fact, we were told this is Christ's people. Come out of Babylon, right? So this language we've seen over and over. And the book of Revelation sets up these two cities. Babylon and the city of God. It sets up two people. The people of Babylon, the people of Satan, and God's people. And there's this distinction between the two all throughout the book of Revelation, right? And there have been this description of people who refused to bow the knee to Caesar, who refused to bow the knee to the beast. They did not worship the beast. They did not take his mark. And plenty of them were killed. This has been true throughout the history, right? This has been true particularly throughout the history of the church. And so when he sees these thrones, what he sees seated on the thrones, he sees people. And evidently, in some way, and I don't have time to unpack all of this right now, but in some way, this language of these people that he sees, in some way, represents the people of God. It represents the church. I don't think he sees two groups here. Some have said, well, he's seen two groups. He saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. Literally, their head cut off in the axe. For the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. You remember how did they overcome? Remember, remember that language? Through the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and not loving their life to death. So, so this is the same kind of language here. So is it that he sees this group, the martyrs, and then he sees those who had not worshipped these martyrs? I think it's all one group. I think the language is that. But then here comes the key. This is the second key to me. One, understanding the binding. Is Satan literally bound? Yes, I think he is. And then here comes the second. And this group of people, they came to life. So your options are this. Some would say, if the thousand years and that binding symbolic, they would say, well, this is obviously the language of the new birth. This is spiritual resurrection. This is coming to faith in Christ and God raising a person spiritually from dead to life. Does the Bible talk in that kind of language? Absolutely it does. In fact, in John chapter 5, in, in verse 25, it, it talks about this specific language. He comes, there are going to be people that, can't, people that can't hear, and then all of a sudden they're going to hear, and then it says, and Jesus says, and they live. They came to life. Probably talking about spiritual life. 
The only problem is, is that the word that's used here for came to life, that's the only place the word's used where it possibly could mean spiritual life. Everywhere else, it's used in connection with a literal physical resurrection. It's used in connection with a literal physical resurrection. So then, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. See, there's a thousand years again. And then it gets interesting in verse 5. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Just about everybody believes the second came to life is physical resurrection. But the question is, is the first one spiritual, second physical? Or are they both physical? I think they're both physical. I think there's a resurrection that happens at the beginning of the world. And that resurrection of life, that resurrection, they came to life, that is the belief. And then there's the, this period of time called the millennium. And then after that, there's another resurrection. The rest of the dead, they came to life. Who's the rest of the dead? They're the unbelievers. Paul in Acts chapter 24, there about verse 15, he says something like this, and we anticipate the resurrection of the just and the unjust. Now, when Paul talks about it there in Acts chapter 24, he didn't say, now we anticipate the resurrection of the just, and then a period of time, and then the resurrection of the unjust. He just puts it all together. But when we see it unfold here in Revelation 20, apparently there is a literal physical resurrection at the beginning of the millennium when Christ comes back. And then we go through this period of the millennium, this age of blessings. And then after that... There's something else that's going to happen. But after that, one of the things that will happen as well is this resurrection of the rest of the dead. Now, I just take the language there, the rest of the dead, to be the unbelievers. So there is a resurrection of the just of the unbelievers. So the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. If first resurrection implies what? Second resurrection. So the first resurrection, the first one, at the beginning of this millennium, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. That's a blessed resurrection. That's the resurrection of God's people. Over such, the second death, this is hell. This language is going to come up again in chapter 21, verse 8. But over such, the second death, hell, has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will rule and they will reign with them, and here's a thousand years again. So apparently what's going to happen is that Satan's bound, there's going to be a resurrection of God's people, the just, and they will be the ones sitting and ruling and reigning over thrones with Christ during this great period of blessings. And then after that's over, you remember Satan was bound and after he must be released, verse 7. And when the thousand years were ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. Ezekiel 38. Gog and Magog with the Scythians of the north that invaded. I think Gog and Magog is, again, symbolic of these invaders. To gather them for battle, their numbers like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. The fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil 
who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night. They will be tormented forever and ever and ever and ever. It's over. It's done. Satan is cast away. So, Revelation 19, second coming of Christ, marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 20, this binding of Satan, this resurrection of the saints, this age of blessedness, and where is Satan during this time? He's cast out of here. And Christ is physically, visibly present. Right? And then after that, there's a resurrection. Resurrection. And Satan is released. But he's only released for a short time. And then what happens? He's finally destroyed. What is the millennium going to be like? I have no clue. Revelation 20 doesn't tell us. Doesn't tell us. And other than the indication, the hints are it's an age of blessings. Who are we going to rule and reign over? It doesn't say. The implication is that we probably will rule and reign over bad guys. But how can there be bad guys if Christ is physically present? How is it you're going to have resurrected people living on this earth physically with non-resurrected? It doesn't say. Is it going to be from Jerusalem? It doesn't say. Are people going to be saved during this period of time? It doesn't say. It implies it. It implies it. Here's the deeper question. And this gets to where I started. Is our problem just external or internal? Where in the world does Satan get this army if he's bound for this period of time and Christ is ruling and reigning on the earth? How in the world does Satan come up with an army? You remember the first rebellion? How many were? The last rebellion? They're going to be so numerous it's like the San Francisco. How in the world could Satan be released and raise an army under the leadership, the governments of the Lord Jesus Christ? Oh, we're not following that guy. We're going to follow it. Hey, this guy's been bound. And, hey, we're going after him. Wouldn't it be stupid to be foolish? Because remember, this is going to be a period of the greatest blessedness, the greatest peace, the, 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 the perfect institution set up. Not like this age. Just don't think of this age on steroids. It is a completely brand new, different age. 
engage with Christ ruling and reigning. Then how in the world can Satan be released and convince people to follow him again? I gotta tell you, that sticks in my crawl. <coughs> but I think there's an answer. And the answer is this. Where do these bad guys come from? They come from the depths of their own sinful, rebellious heart. So our problem is not external. Our problem is not environment. Just change the environment and why we get people to do good things. Right? Our problem is not. Get the right political leaders, have fair elections, whatever else is going on right now. Not only this country, but throughout the rest of the world, getting rid of all these false religions, and we got the truth. And surely then, man, things are going to be right. Change all the external environment. Change, change that, and and, and and surely then, every knee's going to bow, and every tongue's going to confess. We're going to have a glorious time. The problem is, it's not external. The problem is not our environment. The problem is my sinful, rebellious heart. The problem is your sinful, rebellious That's your number one problem. I mean, why are you having issues and, and, and my, look at my life and I think, why, why in my life? What's the number one struggle and issue I face? It's my heart. That's it. That's it. That's why I said in the beginning, is this something that takes a far more radical change than just changing institutions? Yes, it takes a far more radical change. What's the radical change? The radical change is what's been unfolding throughout the book of Revelation and what has been unfolding throughout history. And that is, in the, in, 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 in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, right? And he was born, and he, he came, and he died on the cross, was buried, raised the third day, right? And so, so the radical solution to that was the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. But even beyond that, the book of Revelation presents, presents another radical change. Another radical solution. It's not just this earth warmed over. It is a completely brand new heaven. We're going to get to it. And it's going to be glorious. The problem's not external, it's internal, it's the heart. And only Christ can conquer this, right? Only Christ can conquer this. The radical solution is the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just changing environments. It's transforming sinners from the inside out. It's transforming them from the inside out. Listen, the millennium, this age, is not our blessed hope. It's going to be great. But it's not our blessed hope. We'll get to our blessed hope. You know what our blessed hope is?
But we need to understand the problem. And we need to lead other people to understand that the problem is... Right now, there's so many conspiracy theories going everywhere, right? So many conspiracies. So many. This conspiracy about this. This is what I say to the conspiracy theorists. The conspiracy is so much deeper than you could ever imagine. The conspiracy goes beyond world government or White House or Congress or Supreme Court. The conspiracy goes so much deeper than that. The conspiracy is wrapped up with the one who is deceiving the nations right now. And this conspiracy goes through him to our very stubborn, rebellious hearts. So before we start looking and buying into everything else that's out there, some of which may be true, there may be something. The very first place we start is I look to my own heart. And I lay my heart open before the Lord Jesus Christ and say, you have to change my rebellious heart. Because if you don't, I may be the very one joining Satan in the end. You see it? It's the same problem from the very beginning. We need to stand and as clearly, as passionately, as forcibly, in love, preach the gospel so clear and lead people to understand your problem is not government. Your problem is a sinful, rebellious heart against your Creator. And the radical solution is to quit doing what everybody else is doing and living for themselves. The radical solution is to lay down your arms and seek peace with God through Christ. We need to be so clear about because if we don't, then guess what's going to happen to us as a church? And it's already happening. We are getting pulled and we're starting to swerve into areas that are obscuring the gospel. Not us. Not us. Oh, God. Christ like you never saw. 